This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. This episode is presented by Berger, a unique family-owned company offering the highest quality essential oils, aromatic chemicals, and fragrance materials. I am Hilary Peterson, and I'm the founder of True Botanicals. And for me, it's a matter of proof. And what proof means to me within the beauty industry is that it's not enough to say you're authentic. It's not enough to say that your products work or that these celebrities who are talking about your products really love them, but rather that all of those things are true. Clean, green, and everything in between. There's no going back. The beauty paradigm has shifted forever. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. The backlash against traditional beauty brands may have been inevitable. There was a time not too long ago when natural products were a fringe category. Fast forward, clean, green, and natural claims are table stakes to compete in today's beauty landscape, regardless of price point or channel of distribution. While the future of beauty might be radically clean, the origins of the movement lie in the countless stories of health scares. Thyroid cancer and the feeling of utter indignation at the discovery that all her beauty products had one thing in common, toxic ingredients. This was the driving force for Hillary Peterson to found True Botanicals and her commitment to transform the beauty industry. Hillary, thank you so much for joining us. Like many clean beauty founders and consumers, you found your way to challenging the status quo of the industry and the products that were being developed because of a health crisis. Uh, Can you share a little bit about your path from marketing executive at Levi's to founding True Botanicals and a little bit of, I suppose, emotionally sort of what drove you? Because I have to... you. People talk about that a lot as sort of the, the, the tipping point, if you will, for making the change. But people rarely talk about how emotionally fueled it is because your life like fundamentally changes in so many ways. Such a great question because it, it was a very emotional decision actually for me. Uh, at the time that I was recovering from thyroid cancer, I had baby twins and it's it's a very vulnerable thing to have cancer and and have children that you know you want to be around for as long as possible and as i was recovering i was looking at all of the different ways i could live the healthiest possible life and of course i looked at diet and exercise meditation you know the things that were really already a part of my life and i was thinking i needed to double down on. And one thing that I was 100% unaware of until that time is that there are toxins in many, many of our beauty products. And I discovered that. And once I discovered that, you know, the emotion that I felt was indignation. I just thought, well, that is completely crazy that there's an industry selling me products, telling me I should use them to look and feel beautiful. And they're made with toxins. What's beautiful about toxins? Nothing. And so you know, coming from an entrepreneurial family and having a marketing background and feeling a very strong sense of passion, I decided that this was something I wanted to do. 
And was it really from, I mean, I think indignation is sort of kind of sums it up because it's sort of anger and passion. And, you know, did you really feel compelled that you had to be part of a change um, or that you could affect change? Was that the driving force? Yes, I think, you know, when people ask me what makes me feel the happiest in life, mm-hmm. I've always had the feeling that helping people is an incredible privilege, helping them in whatever way they need help. And so I think it was clear to me professionally that I would do something someday as an entrepreneur that helped people. And it just became clear to me that this was this was the way. It's interesting how sometimes, like everything in life happens for a purpose, even though I think sometimes it's not immediately apparent apparent to us. It completely, completely. It was a gift. It was a gift in a lot of ways because I feel that I raised my children very differently also, having had that experience. You know, it's impacted a lot of things. Well, I also think that, you know, I, I mean, I'm thankful for entrepreneurs like you who have sort of the the foundation and, and background in business, but the passion and sort of the the willingness to sort of change the status quo because it's never an easy path. Um, it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's not. And, you know, I, I, I think that there are – you know, the clean beauty conversation has become prevalent, which is fantastic. Um, it is. But I also feel like it is also, I'm not sure what it's grounded in anymore. Um, but when you launched True Botanicals in 2014, it was still early days. It was. Um, in clean beauty. And you were one of the first brands um, to create products with that were made safe certified. Um, why was it important to you, um, to have that certification? Um, and why made safe, uh, as opposed to, you know, any number of other third parties? So what became apparent even at that time when there were fewer brands in the marketplace is that there was so much misinformation. You know, some brands would say hundred percent organic, hundred percent natural, strictest standards in the industry. And yet there was no way to measure the authenticity of the claims. And I think consumers were very confused. And frankly, I was confused. Mm -hmm. And so I stood back and I thought, what do I really care about relative to these products that I want to create? I want them to be very effective. And I want to make sure that they are absolutely safe for people on the planet. And in that goal there really isn't a need for 100% natural because vitamin C is an incredible ingredient and non-toxic. So is hyaluronic acid. Um, you know, And so ultimately I realized, I think there are a lot of people like me that want results and to know that the products are safe. And Made Safe is without a doubt the most rigorous certification in that way because so many toxins are hidden in sub-ingredients in products. And Made Safe looks at every single ingredient and sub-ingredient to assure that they're safe for people on the planet, that they don't bioaccumulate in the planet or people. And the rigor of that certification most closely matched my goals. So that's that's why I chose it. And I found Made Safe through our science advisor, who's the head of green chemistry at uh, Carnegie Mellon University. And we were one of their first brands, actually. I have to say, I think Made Safe has 
of all sort of the third party, I think for the same reasons I think that you chose it, I think that they are finally providing guidelines that actually have some teeth in them. Yes. Um, And they're really looking at these ingredients. You know, because I think so many of the other certifications, it's about writing a check at the end of the day. It is. And And that's not doing anyone a service. And it's self-reporting. Yes. You know, you fill in the information, whereas with Made Safe, they're looking at it all themselves. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm hoping that Made Safe becomes sort of the sort of certification that sort of qualifies brands because I think that there's – you have sort of third-party certifications, but then you have retailer certifications, which – Talk about self-reporting. (laughs) Self-reporting and, um, you know, but it just, it's, it's, I think the intention is correct, but I think it's creating more confusion because there's not consistency between any of them. Well, and the great thing is, I mean, I do have to say, I'm thrilled all of these certifications exist. Yes. I really am because we just keep elevating what's possible. And I think if all the standards were as strict as made safe, then there wouldn't be that many products available. So there is something to to be said for evolution. But I'm thrilled that you appreciate the integrity of Made Safe because I really do too, and I'm grateful they're doing. They're a the fantastic hard work. organization. They really are. I mean, I, at least they're like they they have raised the bar for what's possible. Yes. Because I think for so long there was there was a lot of questions. I think in consumers' minds, but but even um kind of on the formulation side of what was possible. And I really think it was sort it's the indie brands that push these sort of contract manufacturers and formulators to think differently. Yes, a hundred percent. And we're having that experience now. And it's it's been very rewarding to see how how we've been able to help evolve the industry. I mean, I think I think the formulation of um, clean beauty and even organic and natural has come so far, but I feel like the packaging side of the equation hasn't moved as fast. No, it hasn't. Unfortunately. I, I really – it's so funny because people will say to me, what is your greatest challenge in creating your products? And I say the packaging. And there are a lot of issues. I mean, for instance, brands are interested in doing things that you would think would be very positive, for instance, using recycled plastic. Mm -hmm. And actually, recycled plastic loses its integrity. And so the toxins are more likely to leach into products. So there's a lot of complexity as we push this industry to evolve and packaging to evolve that's just not really being addressed yet. And I hunger for packaging that would be more thoughtful, and we're doing our best. So far, glass is the answer, yeah. 100% you know, from I th- our perspective. I think it was – I think last year was the moment where I was just sort of like, okay, the packaging side of our industry finally gets it. And there's – you see innovation happening, but I think it's just starting and I, I see so many really amazing and totally out there solutions coming from um, sort of master's programs and PhD programs um, from design and science, mostly in Europe. Yes. Where I'm like, oh, my God, the creativity, the commercialization isn't there yet. So if only we could get sort of those capable of the commercialization to connect with these really young, beautiful minds, 
I think we're going to get there. Absolutely. Because I know the consumer really cares. We hear from our customers that they really care and they know we're doing the best we can. You know, we still have the droppers with the rubber on top because that's how we can get the product out of the bottle. Yes. But it's exciting. I agree. And, and, you know, 20 years from now, I'm guessing we'll see a very different picture. Yeah. And, you know, and I think also the beauty categories, it's a complicated category. There are there are a lot of moving parts to getting something in a bottle or a jar. And I think consumers and even people in other industries don't realize that, sort of the supply chain complexity. So I think a lot of these technologies are kind of blue sky and haven't really been commercialized. And so as sort of a startup or a, an entrepreneurial business to be the first to bet on that. Like if something goes pear-shaped, you have a whole big problem on your hands. 100%. So it's, it's you know, you also have to, I think, think about the financial risk attached to sort of being the first when it comes to packaging. Very much. For instance, something that's biodegradable, well, how quickly does it biodegrade? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. In talking about a little bit about sort of the DNA and sort of product side of of true botanicals, I think there's another really important part and really interesting part to me, kind of what makes your business tick, and that's your commitment to conscious entrepreneurism, and as and also talking about the business as being an equitable endeavor, which is so refreshing in sort of a highly transactional environment that we live in. But can you explain what this means exactly, kind of how it's structured and why it was important? You know, a lot of times people will say to me, uh, we're just so proud of you and what you've done with your company. And even at work, sometimes employees will say to me, well, it is your company. And I'll quickly correct them and say, well, no, it's our company. You know, and when when you look at our brand activists, Laura Dern, Olivia Wilde, and Zossie Beats, you know, they very much f- feel like they're partners in collaborating with us to create change in an industry that's so desperately in need of change. And, you know, a lot of that comes from an attitude. It also comes from the fact that our employees and our brand activists are all part owners of the company. And so together, we're building something that will benefit all of us. Um, You know, most important benefit our consumers and and the planet. And it it creates a whole different feeling. Like Olivia came to the office one day um, for the opening of our store, and she was spending time with the employees and talking to everybody and really acting like somebody who's a part of our company because she is. Mm -hmm. And I think it makes a really big difference when you have a mission-driven business, uh, when when people can feel as much a part of it as as our team does. You know, I think that – I think a lot of companies pay lip service to that concept. I think what sort of struck a a chord with me was that you have – kind of actualized it in a very concrete way that seems to sort of from an outsider feel like it's almost the foundation of intent on how you do business. I I think you're right. I think you're right. And it does make it feel very different to me. I know it's the kind of place that I would want to work. And so, you know, just like these products are the kind of products I would like to use. And, you know, ironically, I haven't 
actually told this story before. In an interview, I was working with one of our manufacturers and we were talking through some decisions that we needed to make about one of our products. We formulate all of our products mm-hmm. ourselves. And uh, there were just a couple of uh, cost-cutting opportunities that he pointed out. And I just said, no, well, we couldn't do that because this, and we couldn't do that because this. And at the end of the meeting, he said, I just want to tell you, it's so refreshing. You're the first person I've met with who's making the kinds of products they'd like to use themselves. And this is a big manufacturer. And I was very shocked. I was very, sh- I know that's not true because I've met, I love so many fellow brands in, in the green beauty industry and, and so respect the work they're doing. So that's very refreshing, but it, it was surprising. And it just made me realize that, you know, owning it in the way that we are, um, you know, is something I'm excited to see more in the world for sure. Well, I, you know, I think that, I think the beauty industry has been really hot category from kind of an investor standpoint. And I think any time, you know, I started my career kind of in the late 90s at Bliss. So we were, I was sort of part of that first incarnation of kind of beauty brands that scaled. And um, so it's kind of interesting to, to see it come full circle. But I think any time that happens, you have people who enter the industry or launch brands thinking that it's a quick in and out with easy money. And I think we both know that there are way easier ways to make money than launching a beauty brand. Um, <laughs> but I think it's happened in clean beauty because the the growth is has been kind of meteoric. Investors are looking at it. And so I think you have the people who are really committed to making the change. And then you have a lot of opportunistic brands. And I think that that's where, I think that's where the confusion is coming from. Yes, I think you're right. And that's where I think these certifications can make a huge difference and where I think clinical trials and before and afters and genuine customer testimonials so that the the customers can, you know, make choices that, that are well-informed because it's hard. It is, as it, as it gets more crowded, I think it gets more confusing. I, and I think as, I, I think as it evolves and gets sort of on one end of the spectrum, you have brands that are pushing for validation and, and creating the proof behind. I mean, Cult Beauty is working with a blockchain company called Provenance to actually create substantiation in a completely different way. But then on the other side, you know, you have the FTC suing people for for claims that, you know, I mean, one of the brands, I remember looking at it, and I'm not a product developer, but I was like, there's no way. There's no way that product is natural. And so, but, you know, it's like, I don't know, is it a cost of doing business? Because, you know, there was this window of opportunity and you can have these brands that can be a quick in and out because the barrier of entry has been so low. Yeah. And you've seen that happen in the food industry too. Yeah. A lot of misinformation. Um, I suppose that goes to my next question. I kind of, I kind of refer to the, the category as clean beauty clean green and kind of everything in between because it has kind of become that. But what do you think the future holds for this category? And, you know, as one of the kind of pioneers in the category, you know, what sort of leadership role are are you and the company taking to kind of make the, the future that you see happen? 
I have such faith in the future generations and the fact that they are so discerning and thoughtful and committed to what things are versus what they look like. And so I'm very hopeful that this is why I love being a direct brand. Um, I'm very hopeful that this particular group coming up is going to be very careful to research the ingredients and to make sure that companies are what they say they are. And so I I feel confident that the future holds um, a lot of benefit for brands that are truly authentic. I think that's, and, and truthful, you know, around the proof that they provide relative to the safety of products, the efficacy of products, you know, that their testimonials on their website are from real people and they're real testimonials. You know, I, I do believe that this is a moment where those types of brands will be the most successful. And I'm grateful for the thoughtfulness of, of you know, Gen Xers and Gen Z consumers who, who are going to hold companies, I think, to their word. I agree with you. I think that there is... Um, I would even push it further. I think there's a reckoning coming from sort of Gen Z consumers. And if these brands that kind of play free and easy with claims and what they stand for, if they don't sort of like clean up their acts, I don't think they're going to be in business. I just don't. I think there's a point coming where it's just simply not going to be tolerated anymore. I agree. I think people want the truth. And the truth doesn't have to be it doesn't that, have to be scary. <laughs> right. And it doesn't have to be that a brand is 100% committed mm-hmm. to one thing or another. Just they are what Just they be are. Honest. Be Be who you are. I would agree. And I really, I hope that time comes because I think it's, I think it's better for everyone. I think it's better for the consumer. I think it's better for the businesses themselves and the people who sort of work for those businesses. And it's certainly better for this category. That's where I feel like something like Made Safe is essential. It's going to be our protection during these times, I think. Um, You briefly touched on the fact that you're a direct brand. Um, So, you know, initially when you launched, um, you were sort of direct brand kind of, I guess, maybe – digitally native, but you also had sort of a more traditional path um, that many sort of luxury skincare brands take take with a really curated group of um, of retailers. Barney's, which, you know, I guess, you know, you got safe there. Um, Still sad. I love that <laughs> it is so It is so sad. I, it's a whole other – it's heartbreaking. Um, Folane, Aubert, so it was really sort of high-end department stores – independent retail, um, and spa, but you did something sort of unconventional. Uh, you know, most people would not sort of pull out of retailers like that. Um, but you clearly did an intentional pivot and I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit. Yes. So, you know, we really value the retailers that we were in and those relationships. And, and I just really enjoyed everything that I learned from being in the retail environment and got a lot from that. It was a great way to connect with new consumers. Our our direct business was growing so quickly and was requiring so much attention and focus that we realized it was a moment for us to really double down on direct and focus and, and bring to it everything that we could. Um, 
And, you know, I really see going forward that there will likely be opportunities to go back into retail. You know, we've done that. We've done a lot of foundational work on our on our direct business and, and it's very solid. And um, so I could definitely see a moment in which we, we look for ways to meet consumers where they are um, through select retail partnerships again. Would part of that decision be sort of the cost of acquisition online that is really making it kind of prohibitive um, to use it solely as the way of attracting new consumers? It's just not sustainable anymore. Yeah, I think, you know, it's to me, it's a very complementary opportunity to be online and then to be where people are looking for products like ours. So I think a lot of it is around the complementary aspects because um, I don't think we've yet fully tapped what's possible as a direct business. So for us, it's probably primarily focused on that opportunity and the, and the fact that convenience, you know, yeah. sometimes people just want to grab and touch and feel and, and also experience the products. And, and I think what's great about um, potentially tapping into retail again is the opportunity of partnering with retailers to create experiences that are compelling for consumers. Um, it just adds, adds, adds another dimension, I think, to the, to the possibility. So one of the retailers you didn't exit was Goop. Yes. Um, and can you tell us why? I think I know, but I, I'm not going to answer the question for you. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I'm so curious what you think. Um, yeah, the, the reason we did not um, pull our products from Goop was because, you know, they too are online, direct, but, but really it, it was about their editorial platform and the fact that they're so content driven. It just felt like we, we wanted to continue to be a part of what they're doing. I know one of the one of the interesting things that you've done, and I'm waiting for my next trip to San Francisco to come see your store because it is stunning from what I've seen. Please come and get a facial. We would love it. I would love for you to talk about, um, I would imagine that, you know, that offline um, sort of articulation of your brand on your own terms will probably inform how you enter retail. Again, I'm guessing. Yes. But what does the purpose of that store mean for you sort of from a business standpoint, community brand? Like it's more than just selling products, clearly. Yes, definitely. Well, for one thing, the store is downstairs and our offices are upstairs, which, you know, is such a fun sort of traditional European model. I love it. Yeah. I love to be able to go downstairs and listen to customers' interactions and questions. And we have a clinic in the store. So it serves several purposes. One is the clinic allows us to go deeper with customers in our problem-solving efforts. You know, we can have a trio of facials support someone who's um, struggling with adult acne or who is trying to soothe rosacea. So we can really be consultative and have um, that very direct experience with them. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other is we're really seeing it as a as an event incubator where we can figure out, you know, what are the most compelling ways for people to come in and interact with us. What's most interesting to them? You know, how can how can we um, meet them where they are and provide the kind of information and event that, that interests them most? Um, so we're learning a lot. And yes, we'll definitely apply that learning to um, future retail endeavors, definitely. And will we see more branded stores? I would think so, yes. 
in New York. <laughs> well, it's so interesting because I really think New York would be a perfect place for us to have one, for sure. Trend Minute, brought to you by big thinkers that aren't afraid to make predictions. I'm Navarth Batliwala from the Beauty Conversation, and I'm here to talk about trends. Let's talk about post-shelfie skincare. A recent Mintel report found that in the UK, 28% of women have reduced the number of products in their skincare routines. This is chiming with the Visco Girls and Gen Z preference for natural, gender-neutral beauty that's more about a healthy glow than contouring and baking effects of makeup. We found that millennials are looking for multifunctional hybrid products. So, for example, Glossier Future Dew, which is an oil serum that bridges the skincare to makeup gap. And this trend also speaks to sustainability awareness in which the post-shelfie consumer wants to use fewer products. This knowledgeable skin intellectual consumer knows what works for their skin. So there's less trial and error and consequently less waste. So the takeaway from this is to understand how skincare brands can engage customers Maybe take a cue from La Roche-Posay and The Ordinary, whose interactive Q&As and poll-style stories on Instagram are really successful and engaging for their consumers. That's your Trend Minute. I'm Navaz Batliwala, and for more of our insights, go to The Beauty Conversation on Instagram and sign up to our newsletter. I want to take a minute and talk about Berger a unique family-owned company offering the highest quality essential oils, aromatic chemicals, and fragrance materials. Sensory-enhancing solutions for the world's most respected brands. Berger's Uncommon Inventory is a single resource from mainstream ingredients to the esoteric raw materials that provide your creative spark. Over 300 essential oils and more than 2,500 aromatics. Their global network of producers ensure uninterrupted supply even in unpredictable markets. They source materials from trusted producers and screen meticulously throughout their supply chain for purity in all ingredients. Berger focuses on sustainable and environmentally sensitive solutions that deliver total customer support. To learn more, visit bergerinc.com. That's B-E-R-J-E-I-N-C.com. so many of the the decisions that you've made you've been sort of either a little bit ahead of the curve or kind of zigging when people are zagging and I think one of the one of those things that was um, interesting to me is that you've really engaged sort of celebrity influencers um, in a very different way but tapping into celebrity when sort of most of the industry was going a very different direction mm-hmm. was was it in intentional. I'm sure you have sort of a sort of influencer marketing program in support of it, which I think, you know, that whole thing is a whole other can of worms. Yes, it is. Um, And probably a completely separate podcast. But, you know, can you can you talk about sort of the celebrity um, strategy? Yes. So what what became clear to me as we were building True Botanicals is that a lot of celebrities were using and loving our products, but they couldn't talk about them because they had beauty contracts. And I thought, well, that's interesting because it it clearly 
celebrity culture has helped to build a multi-billion dollar beauty industry. And if they were using our products and loving them, and, you know, at the same time, I was seeing that so many celebrities really care about sustainability and the planet and how can we, how can we best support pushing things in the right direction. And I just saw that there was an opportunity to seek out some relationships where we could partner and do something very beneficial for people on the planet and all of us collectively grow something really meaningful. So, you know, to me, reaching out to celebrities at that time was an opportunity to expand reach. You know, their reach is unparalleled. Expand reach and do something really positive. And I'm not seeing it exclusively as um, something we want to build with celebrities, our partnerships. You know, I'm seeing this band of activists as a group that Im- includes celebrities, makeup artists, influencers, more traditional influencers, our customers. It's all of us coming together and saying as a community, we deserve better. And here's a brand that's doing that. And um, so we're calling it our band of activists. And I think it'll include a lot more. It will include a lot more than our celebrity partners. And they're very excited for that Mm -hmm. as well. But that was the, the sort of the starting point. And that was the starting point. It was sort of starting, I guess, with this group of people who've had the most significant influence and who have the broadest reach. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because at a time where the brand was sort of chasing these these online influencers, which definitely play a role, and we're kind of eschewing the traditional celebrity endorsement, I think it's very interesting that you sort of approached it kind of from a different way. It wasn't about a transaction. It was about a deep partnership. I think what we were able to do that's hard for most brands to do is to work with celebrities who so genuinely believed in what we're doing. It was just a moment where I think celebrity endorsements themselves were shifting. Yes, to your point. And And I think you saw, did you see an opportunity? Yes. Yes. And they did too, which is really exciting. It was a very mutual observation. I you know, I think I, I think for me the brands that are really are really getting the most traction are those that have unlocked the community component. I mean Glossier is built on community. Incredibly. Um, you know, so I think and people throw the word community around a lot, but I think it requires a lot of work it to does. build and a commitment. Um, to build a community because it's not transactional. You can't hire an agency to do it. Like you have to like, it has to be part of your DNA and everyone on the team has to sort of buy into it, I would imagine. Completely. And I think it needs to be built on genuine passion. And so I feel like we've just begun. You know, I think this is going to be a big year for us around community building, which I'm very excited about. Another... Um, I think you sort of have, you know, there in my mind when, you know, when I build brands, like you, you check off like all those boxes that I have uh, when I work with clients or I have built brands in the past, which is always really exciting for me. But I think one of the things where I was like, oh my God, of course they did, was when you upped your content game recently um, and evolved your blog into a full on wellness editorial platform called The Ritual. And I feel like sometimes I feel I feel like sometimes people get tired of me saying the same thing over and over again, but for the past 5 years I've been telling people you have to think of your brand as a as if you were a publisher. 
because I really think that in today's sort of really noisy environment, you have to show up with something other than product to create value for consumers. So it made, to me, I was like, you're, you were, I'm like, of course they're one of the first ones to do it. That's such a nice compliment. I live feeding the content beast. So I know what it takes to actually do it. Um, you know, what was the thought around, A, the need to do it, B, how to resource it and and sort of keep it going, um, and where do you sort of um, see it evolving to? So you're absolutely right. It It is a significant undertaking. And we felt that it was the time to do it because when we thought about beauty and our products and the interactions that we were having with our customers, so much of the conversation was around information. And this allows us more space to deliver information, whether it's about the efficacy of the products and sharing people's stories or whether it's commonly asked questions or aspects of wellness that can impact how you look and feel, sleep, having a really great relaxing bath, you know, the things that can really support us best um, in this increasingly busy life um, and world that we live in. So, you know, I think that Doing this has allowed us actually to tap into the power of information from several different aspects of the company, whether it's the customer service team or whether it's the product team wanting to get more deeply into our products and how they work. Um, it's been very positive uh, relative to not only telling our story as a brand, but also relative to acquisition and search and and the ways that this increasingly um, – discerning consumer is researching and looking for products, it's a great place for us to connect with them too, relative to search. So from the editorial standpoint, I know that it's not, it. you know, I think the difference between, for me at least, an editorial platform and sort of a blog is that it's not just about you. Right. So how do you sort of strike that balance um, between sort of editorial and contextual selling, if you will? I think the important thing is that we're just very careful to mix it up, you know, and, and make sure that there's a little bit of everything closely enough related to who we are as a brand that it makes, makes sense. sense. I think that's one thing that's really important is, you know, not to expand too far outside of beauty um, and, and really focus on wellness as it relates to beauty um, seems to have worked well and, and that, you know, the, the response that we've gotten indicates that we're, we're striking that balance right now. If anything, I think that we've learned that we don't want to be too shy about if we have a story all about, you know, how to get the perfect glow, make sure people can shop the products from that story. At first we were even kind of hesitant mm -hmm. to do that. And we've learned, no, it's really important to make it easy for people to find what they're looking for. From kind of a branded content, it's still very new. Um, but I think the expectation is, um, you know, you have to make, you don't want to put up blockers um, for consumers because at the end of the day, it is about your business. Yes, completely. And it can also be about other brands, which I really mm -hmm. enjoy because there are incredible clean brands out there. We love to share, you know, discoveries and, you know, what we're using and why. So I love that aspect. And um, 
we've really enjoyed building it and it's definitely we found that it's it's been very supportive of our overall business objectives which has been um, very exciting. I have to imagine it kind of surfaces interesting collaborations. Yes, no question. And not only collaborations with like-minded brands, which is exciting, also, you know, being able to connect more deeply with our customers and share their stories. That's also been very positive and and you realize how much other customers really enjoy seeing that and, mm-hmm. and learning from other people's experiences. I mean, at the end of the day, I think consumers are the most powerful influencers. I think so. Beyond every celebrities, sort of uh, Instagram influencers, the end of the day, you know, that kind of old school word of mouth, like friend to friend is so powerful. I couldn't agree more. So powerful. We touched a little bit on on sort of the the very active financial M&A activity and environment behind the brand. Um, you're a venture-backed brand, yes. um, which informs decisions because you have people to answer to. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I think you have, you've clearly raised very smart money, which is always interesting to me and an indication of future success because that comes with insight and connections and, um, you know, a Unilever Ventures is, uh, was your, one of your first investors. And then um, we're also part of the Series A that you closed last year. Um, Do you have any fundraising tips that you would share with other entrepreneurs? Um, You know, I think that there is, and I feel complicit in what has been created, but this idea that um, it's easy to raise money, everybody does it. And that if you launch a beauty brand, that there's like a billion dollar check at the other end of it. Um, but, you know, I think it is a, it's a necessary evil. I think it's hard to compete without financing. There used to be a time where you could self-fund yourself to success. Right. But unless you are have a very large trust fund, it's just not possible anymore. Um, so a lot of – I think a lot of um, – a lot of entrepreneurs go into fundraising um, without really understanding what it entails. Um, could you just give some tips that that were successful for you or Definitely. sort of flags to – red flags to watch out for? Definitely. E- everything you said resonates with me. And, you know, you're absolutely right. The decision to raise funds was 100% based on the fact that it was clear – this industry was moving fast yeah. and that if we wanted to compete um, amidst, you know, this growing number of clean beauty brands, then we needed the funds to best tell our story and reach as many people as possible as quickly as possible. And so that is ultimately what inspired the, the decision to raise funds. And I was lucky along the way to get some great advice from friends who've been in banking for a very long time. And it was very careful about the partners that we brought on board. And it's proving to be one of the most important decisions I will have made. Um, I'm so lucky that uh, all of our investors are aligned with our vision and our mission. So not once have I ever been in any way questioned about the very firm lines we've drawn in the sand relative to efficacy, product safety, sustainability. Um, if anything, very much supported. Well, how can we help you accomplish mm-hmm. that? 
Um, so I think, you know, finding an investor is like, you know, a, a marriage, a partnership that you have to take that seriously because these are people you'll be working with for a long time. And, you know, fortunately, um, we have partners who have been truly that and, and, and that, you know, you just can't assume you won't be having a lot of interaction because you absolutely will. And when things are going great, um, that's one thing, but, you know, imagine a year, fortunately, this, this has not been the case for us. I just knocked on wood, but <laughs> a year, you know, life isn't always easy. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, who, who are the partners during more challenging times who, who will be the most supportive? It's very easy to get people on board when things are going well. Yes. Yes. And so I think experienced investors makes a huge difference, you know, who've really seen it all because they, they can bring a lot of um, insight to conversations. Uh, I would say as few as possible makes a lot of sense because you're going to want to be in contact with all of them and they're going to want to be in contact with you. So I think that's an important thing to consider. And a variety of experience, you know, looking at who you've got around the table and what each investor brings to the conversation makes a really big difference. That variety over time um, has has really been an, an important asset for us. It's very different than the first go around of indie brands where a lot of those really were sort of self-financed. Bliss certainly was. Um, but I think it, it has really changed the dynamic of, I think, how beauty brands are launched and scaled and who's successful and who's not, um, which it, you know, I think times change. Things have moved much faster. Shockingly. Shockingly. I would have never foreseen that we would be where we are right now. It is, um, you know, I think the, the, the power of technology, um, is is interesting but i you know i think we both you come from sort of a traditional what what we would call air quoting traditional marketing background with levi's I, mine is traditional only by the 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 sense that i've done it for a long time i think um with some amazing brands well thank you but i you know i i'm interested in your per perception of I know that I find myself out of desire but almost necessity um, surrounding myself around young people who kind of speak like the language of memes that I don't get it um, but I'm also sort of I've been sitting at I've sat at tables where you have sort of younger marketers look at you like you have 10 heads but I'm I'm increasingly thinking that, and maybe I always have, but marketing hasn't changed. No. The fundamentals of marketing are still the same. And I think brands that marry sort of that traditional experience, because we're in an industry that, you know, kind of youth is everything. But I think that there were, I think perhaps we're coming to a time where there's going to be this marriage of Gen Z, millennials, and Gen X, and boomers, that like when everyone kind of comes together with their shared experience, like that's powerful. Um, I'm not sure how we get there. Yeah, it's so interesting that you bring that up because it's so much a part of my experience right now. You know, mm -hmm. we have a lot of young people yeah. working at my company. <laughs> and, you know, I agree with you wholeheartedly that 
brand building in and of itself has not changed. The tactics have evolved. And I would not be the person to be able to highlight the latest and most powerful tactics. You know, it's, it's evolving on a weekly basis. But I do think that that discipline of how to build an authentic uh, brand that has staying power is what it was 30 years ago. You know, which is exciting to me because I feel like, okay, well, that's what I can bring. And I'm excited to surround myself with people who get all the rest of it. And I, I do agree with you. It's so interesting because when we talk about who our consumer is, we say it's women of all ages, ages with a millennial mindset. Mm-hmm. So it is that coming together because when you think about beauty and how women share stories about beauty and what's working for them and what they need you know, it's a multi-generational thing. Mm-hmm. People say all the time, oh, well, I learned everything I know about beauty from my mom. Or moms will say, I learned everything I know about beauty from my daughter. You know, it's it's really this multi-generational, maybe more than a lot of other industries. And so maybe beauty will be the first place where all of that comes together, um, which I would love. I think so too, because I, you know, I, I think I read a study just last week that um and it was related to sort of this opportunity um in the 50 plus cohort which i don't know having crossed that threshold i feel like yeah i get it no one talks to me <laughs> we went through this period of millennial brands where like there's a real brilliance to them but i think we've also gotten to a point where there is almost a monotony and sameness there's a formula And I think the opportunities are perhaps on the edges of that. I think, you know, Gen Z and definitely, you know, the spending power of Gen X and boomers cannot be dismissed. You know, it's like, you know, turning 50 is not like this AARP moment of like walking down the beach, like in bad chinos. Like like that is not, (laughs) that's not it. Thank goodness. (laughs) Right? But it, it, there was the statistic was it was over 70%, regardless of generation, want brands to show diversity from an age perspective. And to speak to me. Yes. Please speak to me. I, I read that article. Yeah. So yes, I, I, I read it and it really resonated. And this sort of comes back to what we were talking about with our band of activists. Yeah. I don't want it to be just celebrities and just millennials. I mean, it feels like it needs to speak in a way that's fresh and young to that group, but it should be everybody. Don't, don't we all deserve to use products that deliver amazing results without toxins? And shouldn't we all, or not even shouldn't, I feel like don't we all, you know, anybody I talk to is caring about health and the environment. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's so timely for people across all generations. And so I, I do agree with you completely. And, and I do think figuring out ways to do that, um, that still really support being fresh and young and relevant, I think that's the next frontier. I think that's where the secret sauce is going to be I do for think a lot that, of brands. I think that maybe you are right, where maybe beauty will be sort of the, the category to unlock this cross-generational collaboration in the workspace, perhaps. Um, it would be certainly exciting because I really do. I think that that is going to be the way forward. There's not going to be just Gen Z brands and 
millennial brands and these cohorts all age as well. So, Hillary, thank you so much um, for coming today and sharing. I have one last question, kind of a softball question. But if there was one piece of advice that you could give um, another startup founder or entrepreneur that would fundamentally change their business from your perspective, what would it be? Never doubt that deep drive and instinct that moved you to do this in the first place. I think it's really easy to get distracted by what's happening in your category, what's happening in the industry. And, and I do think it's easy to question because, you know, as a founder, I consider myself chief problem solver. You know, there, there are issues that arise on a daily basis. And I think it's just staying tapped into that essence of, of why you're there and knowing that you, you wouldn't have done it if it didn't make sense. I 100% agree with you. I think it's interesting. Um, one another conversation that we had recently was um, someone who comes from the tech incubator world, um, and I asked her the same question. And it's interesting that she had her advice to entrepreneurs was similar. Um, so it's interesting that I think even on the finance side, what makes entrepreneurs and founders tick? Like you have to stay true to that because it's what makes your business different. It it is. The data can't give you that. The data can help you make a lot of really important decisions, but it just can't tell you what that essence is. To me, what matters is proof. Uh, proof that we don't need to risk unnecessary exposure to toxins in order to get results. Proof that products are safe, that ingredients have been vetted all the way through supply chain, and that products work in the way that you hope that they would proven through clinical trial results and before and after photos and real testimonials. Thank you, Hillary. Thank you so much for having me. For Hillary Peterson and True Botanicals, it's a matter of proof. They're driven by a mission to transform beauty, one woman, one result, one moment at a time. They're creating a collective force of well-being. Greenwashing or fear-mongering are the descriptors often used by marketers, depending which side of the green, clean, everything-in-between beauty continuum you find yourself on. While the beauty consumer is one of the most socially targeted, digitally educated, and engaged in the world, they're drowning in terms like clean, natural, organic, green, wildcrafted, biodegradable, vegan, cruelty-free, non-toxic, and the list goes on. Many brands play free and easy with these claims, taking advantage of the lack of regulation, while other well-intentioned brands make the claims without any substantiation. The beauty industry needs more change makers like Hillary that are willing to not only break the rules but have the commitment to establish new ones. So in the end, it's a matter of proof. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter LLC, copyright 2020. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media at Beauty Matter Official.
This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Connect. 